Welcome to the Extra Credit uh, Podcast with Everdink, a podcast where we entertain the intellectual regions of your brain. We're your host, Everly and Hav. And today we are going to do part two of tackling this difficult topic of disinformation and misinformation. Yeah, so our last episode, we really tried to lay out some of the difficulties that we saw in attacking this, this topic. Um, some of the biases or perceived biases that um, that society can get hung up around. And, and we really tried to lay out why we still think it's a topic we need to, to consider. Um, so if you haven't listened to that episode, it would be helpful at least to listen to the middle part of that to understand kind of kind of why we think this is important. Yeah, we were we were kind of so nervous about it that we spent most of the hour talking about why it was or most of the time talking about why it was going to be a difficult podcast to talk about. And then we didn't even get to the difficult stuff. And then two weeks later, um, here we are, because we had we had a week where you were out for a couple of days, right? Yep. And then uh, um, and then we had that our lovely uh, winter break there that uh, that we have, which is now we only have if, if you're a Hamilton student and you're listening to this and not somewhere from around the world. Because uh, we do get some listeners from around the world here at the Extra Credit Podcast. Uh, Slovenia. That's the one I want to talk to. If you're uh, a Slovenian listener out there, we've got, hit us we, up. Yep, that's right. And less and less impressively, we have uh, potentially my sister listening from the east side of the state. Because as soon as I give her the, uh, the link to the podcast, <laughs> she really wanted to listen to it. Because my sister, guys, did I tell you this? That my sister like is going to start a podcast? Did I tell you this? Um, yeah, I think vaguely. I remember yeah. having this conversation. She's so. going to she's gonna start a podcast. So now we have a sibling rivalry podcast. So we really have to start doing a better job of trying to sell this thing. Because I have to beat her. Like, this is going to be a problem. If, if your sister launches a podcast <laughs> with a higher listening audience than you, I can see where that would be tough. Right, it's going to be tough. So We can always make it part of Friday work. Since we, every, everyone does their Friday work, that'll increase yeah, our listening by like our, our listening on Sundays will then go up if we make it part of Friday work. <laughs> Sundays will be perfect. Our, our viewership will be so high on Sundays. Um, then we'll have to come up with a new name, though. So anyway, um, shoot, where are we at? Uh, so we, we are... So, so, yeah, you'll have to go back and listen to the old one if you want us to see why us uh, being potentially nervous about this topic is is why that might be, right? Um, so, And if, if you're not easily offended and you're not that worried about it, then just go ahead and keep listening. Yeah, I mean, then we're all set. Right. One of the things that I tell my AP Lang students is sometimes if you if you listen to something you disagree with or you or you get offended by, like, that might be a good thing. Like. I, we might we might live in a society where um, we're too offense averse, right? So, um, and not that we're going to sit here and try and shock you or anything like that. Probably most of you are going to say like that wasn't all that bad, but um, it's an it's somewhat uncharted territory for us. So, uh, yeah. So so last time we talked about uh, disinformation, we talked about Russian disinformation. Yep. Right. And so we talked about this this concept of um, the the international disinformation that we experienced. Can you just like really quick refresh our memories there? Yeah, it was the uh, the inter Internet research agencies, the bots uh, creating uh, fake accounts, uh, setting up uh, activities, rallies on both sides, uh, putting information out there that then filters into Facebook groups and over time becomes um indiscernible from 
uh, the, the truth and the disinformation, you, you can't figure out which is which because it's been cycled through so many different times. Uh, and, and, and that was on the, that was something that I think most Americans could get behind and say, this is a problem. We can't let this happen. Foreign disinformation is just, that's a threat to our democracy. Right. But I think you're of the mindset that foreign disinformation was bad, but perhaps a bigger problem is, is the topic of today. Yeah. I mean, foreign, foreign disinformation is horrible, right? Like, I mean, let's not like, it's not just bad. It's, it's, it's really bad. It's, it's awful. Like we shouldn't let Russia meddle in, in our elections or anything like that. Right. But here's the thing is like, we also shouldn't let ourselves meddle in our own elections, which is, which I think is, I would argue that like, when, when someone else outside does it, like to, to us, like that's, that's one thing, but when we ourselves, and, and I'm going to say ourselves, like, I'm going to, like, I think that there is some, some element, not to necessarily both sides, everything here, but there is some element like where um, you can make an argument, or maybe not all of us are responsible, but certainly there's, there's lots of actors on, 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 from a variety of political persuasions that this is an issue. However, it's not quite so simple as that. So you would argue that we are a threat to our own democracy. Right, because like anyone who, anyone who like either shares, willfully shares misinformation, or willfully shares misinformation, which would be disinformation, or does it on accident, like that's tough. Anyone who's not really willing to do their homework, I mean, that's tough. And, 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 and I mean, again, like this is working against us because as we talked about in previous episodes, like social media companies are, are the ones that are like, I mean, they monetize this, right? Like they want clicks. Like, and, and what gets clicks is clickbaity articles that use emotion and, and play to people's preconceived biases and stuff like that. And it's, and it's hard to have your guard up all the time, right? So well, like almost, stuff. it almost becomes if you have your guard up all the time, it's like, why are you being so cynical? And, and like, why, why do you hate the world so much? Why do you, why, why do you question everything? And it's, it's like, because I have to, because if, if I don't, I could, I could participate in this unwittingly right. and be a, a threat to my own. Well, and, I mean, and on that note, like this idea of questioning everything like that, like on some level, like that's cool. And, and I've always said like yourself is part of everything, you know? So often when we're like, you hear people say question everything, man, like they don't question themselves nearly enough. And they're not critical of their own biases and they're not critical of like of of the ways in which they're consuming media and their own responsibility in that. Like that's that's something that we just we don't necessarily like that should be question number one is question everything in everything. Number one is you like that should be the first person you question. Um, but th but the problem is, is on top of that, we have people that are probably questioning more trustworthy sources more than ever and and not that trustworthy sources are like perfect like trustworthy doesn't mean perfect right like you and i both probably have a very similar media consumption and i know that we do because i know that we both read things like the atlantic and we both frequent the new york times and we both you know like the like I wouldn't say that we, we read the exact same sources, but but we are probably present in a very similar media ecosphere, right? And while those places aren't perfect, because they aren't, I literally was listening to a podcast. I got totally sucked into it. It was called Caliphate by the New York Times. 
And um, it was about this woman who found this ISIS fighter in Canada. He had kind of slipped through the cracks and he had, he had come back and he was waiting to basically get arrested. And, but they found him and she did all this like reporting and interviewed this dude. And I, and this was probably 2017, 2018. And I was like, this is really interesting. Like you have a New York times reporter interviewing this ISIS person. Like I was, I was hooked on this thing. The guy was a fraud. He totally made it up. And I didn't know anything. I didn't, I hadn't heard anything about that. So I was looking on my podcast feed and all of a sudden I see Caliphate pop up as the most recent one. And I was like, that's weird. Maybe they got like a new podcast or whatever. I click on it and it's a complete retraction of everything. So the New York Times is by no means like perfect, but the New York Times, when they got that wrong, they printed a retraction, right? Whereas like your uncle on Twitter isn't gonna isn't gonna print a retraction when he's wrong. He's probably just gonna double down, right? Right. And this is a problem when like, uh, gosh, what is it? Forty three percent of Americans in twenty eighteen um, admitted to getting their news just straight from Facebook, right? So. <laughs> Right. And, and as we've talked about before, lacking, lacking that editor, lacking someone who is responsible uh, for a story that's responsible for the truth or the validity of a story um, is a scary place to consume media. Right. All right. So you kind of jumped ahead of us and you started to look at, at some of the, the byproducts of this disinformation and some of the, the problems that could come out of it. Um, where where did you see this really start to pop up? Um following the kind of the, the, the Russian threat, we recognize that we start to see disinformation, uh, but then it moves into the domestic realm. What do, yeah. what do you see there that you think our, our listeners ought to at least be aware of? Um, well, I mean, like, the, well, the, the foreign stuff kind of like dissipates right after like 2018, so we probably don't have to worry about it as much. And and we see we see quite a few big examples. Like there's, I mean, certainly people, I mean, people in Hamilton will, will love us, like, you know, like people on the left, like there were, there was lots of hyper-partisan news information about, you know, Trump being like a fascist or, or whatever, right? And leading up to the midterms, leading up to the midterms in 2018. And certainly there was, there was some of that on the other side, right? Like, and, and by the way, hyper-partisan information, I guess we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves. I think we might have defined this in the, in the last podcast, but it's basically, it takes a piece of information that is like, there's a kernel of truth there and it like completely blows it up and makes it super um, emotional and plays to kind of people's biases and stuff like that. And so you take that kernel of truth and you wrap all these like essentially lies and half truths around the kernel of truth. And you get this, um, you get this scene that, that is, you know, pretty ugly. Right. And that hyper-partisanship is what sells. Hyper-partisanship is what creates those clickbait opportunities creates the outrage, uh, causes you to then express that outrage among your circle of friends, right? which which these places would assume are share similar thoughts as you do, thus it's, it gets amplified. Right. And so, and so like, that's an example. I mean, like, there's so many like lit, there, there's like just millions of little examples and you can like, this is where you like, this is why Facebook is just so kind of like, I don't know. Facebook and Twitter are just kind of like so much kind of uglier forms. I think this was was it last week that I talked about how um, how TikTok was the ultimate uh, social media um, uh, company because it's actually like happy and fun and and you know like it actually takes yes it's like 
information dessert, right? Like we talked about last week where it's like, you're not going to learn a whole lot on TikTok. Although there's sometimes there's some people you can follow, I guess. I'm not on TikTok, but like there's some people you follow on TikTok that are, that are pretty smart. But for the most part, it's like information dessert, but it's not, it's like, it's like harmless dessert, right? It's, it's, it's information dessert, not like information cigarettes or, you know, whatever, where it's like, this is, a this is, you know, you, you smoke enough of these things and it's going to kill you. Right. Which is where like, I feel like Facebook and Twitter kind of more are. Um, and so you, you just stuff and, and, and it, and it's true. Like there's been studies that have done, like if basically if you put words on an image, people are more likely to believe those words. So like if I, if I put words and I superimpose them on an image of Abraham Lincoln, people are more likely to believe those words like us are associated with Abraham Lincoln, even though I don't even necessarily attribute them to him. And you, you see this like all the time. And, and so you see this as, as the memes and, and, right. and the, the spreading of memes and, and something will show up on a meme and it'll be hyperpartisan and it'll be inflammatory and it'll be flat out false. And that's but it'll get, it'll get shared. It just makes money, man. A million times over again. And then it'll, it'll work its way back. Right. And, and somehow it comes back almost as legitimate. It, it's a moneymaker for Facebook. And so like what happens is like those tend to be grassroots stuff. Like even like the Russian stuff was grassroots stuff, right? Like it was individuals or bots like making stuff. And then that gets shared and shared and shared and shared through enough people. And then eventually when there's enough traffic, what happens is media companies start to like pick up on it, right? Like there's a there's a meme that's going around about this or, or, or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden it becomes a talking point um, and somebody picks it up and soon enough, you've got, you've got news stations reporting on it. Now, some news stations are going to report on it and they're going to lean into like the mistruth of it and they're going to like report it as fact. And then you've got other ones that are like, kind of like fact checking it and saying, you know, it's, it's true. It's not true or whatever. Right. Right. All the, all those news stations that covered the, uh, homeless guy that, used his last $5 to give a lady a can of gas. And <laughs> then they started a GoFundMe page to help get this homeless guy off the streets. And then you discover that the whole thing's a hoax after right. countless radio stations and, right. and magazines and, and TV stations that right. interviewed these people. Exactly. And something like that, I mean, is, is except for the people that donated, it's a relatively harmless thing, right? Like I see that, or most people see that and they go low lives and we move on and whatever. Right. But when it's more political like that in that kind of, gets into a travel. So that's kind of one type, which is like bottom up, right? Which I would say is actually probably the majority of it. And that's bad. Like it, it, it's, it's really, really, really bad. But there's this other type that, and there's a, there, there's, there's kind of a prime example of this other one uh, that, that really came out in, in 2020, which by the way, going back before that though, like you also see this like with COVID stuff, right? Like you saw a lot of like misinformation with COVID and people, people would share like, the pandemic video. I don't remember if we talked about that last week or not. Um, but you know, that was like, you know, this woman that had basically been completely discredited and people were like, Oh, look, see, she's got the truth. And it's like, no, she doesn't. She just wants her name and she wants to make some money off of, off of the clicks on this thing. Right? Like she had no truth. It was completely debunked right away, but not before it got shared millions of times and really hurt kind of the fight against COVID-19. Right. Now, let me ask you this. I'm going to interrupt it because the CDC, which which we would uh, assume to be a credible source. We we talk about the CDC, and they printed different things, right? right? They throughout the the pandemic in the early stages, they first said this, and then later they they came to so for example, the wipe all these surfaces. People are worried about taking an Amazon box in, wash your hands, wash, like all of those things, and then 
like even us, us as a school, we're, we're wiping every surface. And now the CDC has largely said, this is airborne. Right. But there's a difference there, though, right? right. Like I, it, that, that's what I guess I want. I want to point that difference out. Yeah. 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 yeah I, you were leaving me. I get it. Um, this is what we do. We guys, we just, we give each other the cues and stuff like that. So that is different though, right? It is, is the CDC, like early on, it's not that experts never get anything wrong, right? It's that they, that they are the best source that we have for potentially get, getting things right. And so the CDC, we would have a huge problem if the CDC was still telling us to wipe surfaces off because the, the science has told us that this thing is primarily transmitted via airborne transmission, right? And so once the CD early on, yeah, the CDC had some bad, had some bad advice and that's not good. Like we need our public health infrastructure to be correct. However, that mistake is understandable, right? Because you have a novel, that's the reason why they call it the novel coronavirus because it was novel, it was new. So, you know, like, you had to give science some time to work its way through and to kind of be able to understand that and stuff like that. So, so um, yeah, I mean, so you, you see like, so, so I would say that that is, the def, that is the difference between those two things is that the CDC has a responsibility towards at least justifiable truth, like maybe truth that, that people of goodwill could disagree on, right? So like if the CDC recommends shutdowns or something like that at certain points, like there might be some experts that disagree on where that point is or if shutdowns even work or whatever, but like like there's a there's a there's a a kernel of truth that everyone is kind of like revolving around there um, that is kind of agreed upon and there's some consensus around, right? And that and you know those early months that that had to change. All right. So I think that lays the groundwork in, and I think now is as good a time as any to jump into 2020. Yes. Uh, and because that was going on in 2020. So that was the first part about 2020. So what was the second one? So then we get to November. Uh, and we, uh, I would even argue prior to November. Yes. We, we start to hear all of these rumors fly uh, that an election, it will be rigged. It will be stolen. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of controversy around um around absentee ballots and whether applications for ballots are sent through the mail or if ballots themselves were sent through the mail. And, and this real, you see this real groundswell of, of questioning the legitimacy of the election before it even happens, before it even happens, before it happens that, that there's going to be this, is it going to be a legitimate election? Which is not a good place to be in a democracy, right? Like, like it's one thing if there's like good reason for it, right? Like there's and 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 I'm not saying that our elections are necessarily perfect and that there aren't some better or worse rules that that some some things could potentially be strengthened and some things could be loosened and you know like although this country has a weird this country has in my opinion has a little bit of a weird. Um, uh, fascination with making it hard to vote. Like there's a lot of other democracies where like, it's just easier to vote than in ours. Um, if you start to look at some other places like in Europe and stuff like that, and you again, normal pe reasonable people can disagree with whether our country has that right or their country has it right. But we, we, that tends to be something that we're worried about, but either way, you don't want, you need to have confidence in your elections because like, that's how we decide everything. 
you need you need to have confidence in the infrastructure of your elections yeah. that the systems that are in place will ensure that the votes are counted accurately um, some of our listeners weren't alive in, in 2000, the last right. election that people said, hang on a second, did we actually count these these votes properly? Um, so you need to have confidence in that. I think it, people were right to question an election and if people were making the most informed choices sure. because of, of what had happened in 2016 and the and the influence of outside sources. Right. But now you're now you're going down a whole new rabbit hole to say. Are, are Americans making bad decisions? Right. That's actually a really good distinction. I didn't really think about that. Like, so you, what you're saying is, is like, there's a difference between doubting whether or not Americans are basing their vote on good information and whether or not the structures that are in place that actually count their votes accurately are true and, and trustworthy and that kind of stuff. Right. I, I don't like it that somebody got their information from their uncle on Facebook and it's fundamentally untrue and it influenced who they voted for. And their vote counts the same as yours. And their vote counts the same <laughs> as my hours and hours of research right. of all the different party planks and, and everything. I don't like it, but that's not a battle that, that's not a battle that, that significant, that, that undermines elections. Uh, yeah. It, it doesn't under, under, it doesn't undermine the, credibility of an election right yes not in the same way not in the same way that because certainly we've spent the last like couple weeks talking about how disinformation is tor- terrible 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 for democracy but at the same time um you're right it's it's a different level it's like it, one's really bad one is potentially catastrophic not to potentially overblow it but it is potentially catastrophic I would say they're both potentially catastrophic eventually. But. So what we're both, what we're both saying is that both of these things are terrible. These, these things are terrible, but they're terrible for different reasons. They're terrible for widely different reasons. And the one we really want to talk about today is is this is the structure, the infrastructure, the systems that were in place, and the questioning that went into those systems, and the disinformation campaign around it. Right. All right, everybody, uh, you will probably have just heard this as a really quick uh, transition um, and with some better microphone quality. The truth is, is that it's been three weeks since we recorded what you last uh, just listened to. And so um, it's it, we, we <laughs> the, the first time we recorded this. Uh, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty in that if the podcast goes over 25 minutes, our podcast software cuts out on us, and we didn't realize that until it was too late. Throw in some jury duty, throw in some parent-teacher conferences, and we're not getting back to this conversation until about uh, three weeks later. Um, so you, so if you hear a better quality of audio, hopefully you do. Uh, we've gotten a microphone in that meantime, and uh, so you might hear some better stuff. So where we last left off, you guys just a couple, like a minute ago, uh, heard that we were talking then about the domestic disinformation campaign um, from uh, during the 2020 election that we just uh, essentially lived through. So Mr. Hoverdink, uh, what... How does that story go? What What is the story of the 2020 disinformation campaign potentially maybe take us back to right after Election Day, maybe is a good place to start, maybe before that even? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, welcome back from uh, your civic duty of, of, of helping to of 
find all of the wonderful elements of our justice system. Yeah, we'll do a podcast on that maybe sometime. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, but really, this this podcast is going to end up in the justice system, uh, not us, but well, maybe uh, this podcast is going to end up dealing with some of the elements of the justice system. But before we get to that, um, I want to go back and I, I'm going to do you one better this time. It go back probably three, four months before the election took place Okay, uh, with a, a Twitter campaign, uh, a Twitter campaign from the very top that made it very clear that that Donald Trump and his uh, close associates were were laying the groundwork for what was going to be a stolen election. OK, uh, critiquing uh, everything from the process that uh, attorney generals within states were already taking. Um, critiquing the voter ballot uh, and absentee process in all of these states, uh, despite despite the fact that, that we were and are in a pandemic and uh, many of the absentee policies that were developed on short notice uh, were meant to make voting and polling poll workers safer. Sure. Um, but you see this, this very specific campaign uh, without real evidence that says this is a, a rigged and stolen election, and the only way Biden Harris win is if this this campaign is is or if this election is stolen. Yeah, this this takes us back to you know it's almost six months now, right? Like it's weird that November was I mean, it's March now, right? So early November to March, this is this is five months ago. Uh, time flies, um, but so essentially, what you're telling us is that. Um, that this was a that the groundwork was laid even before the election to potentially challenge it in case um, President Trump lost. There's a pretty famous exchange during one of their um, uh, debates where they said, "Hey, look, if if they ask both candidates, if you lose, will you concede?" And Biden essentially agreed to concede, and and Trump. Did did essentially did not agree to concede, and that's essentially what what happened. Right. So so this is where we're at, and, and we've talked about the dangers of this uh, with hyperpartisanship. We've talked about the the problems of disinformation and the ability to to know and separate truth from from fiction. And this was this problem that a lot of people saw coming. A lot of people anticipated, uh, but it still was watching it play out in real time, led you to shake your head and say, and, and this is why we need to address the concept of disinformation. This is why we need to get it right. Uh, I think as we listen back to our uh, our podcast to figure out exactly what we needed to cover yet, there was, we had an exchange where we said, is it is it bad that people are making uninformed and bad political decisions off of information that's not true? And said, I don't, I started off saying I don't like it, and and I think as I, as I heard it back again, I was like, "Wait a minute, this is this is awful." Uh, so as we think about this disinformation campaign, as we think about this specific situation and its uh, attack on on American institutions, um, how did you see other things support this claim of of a stolen election? So, I mean, I think if you, so where, I think it probably the, the most helpful way to would be to start with the um, kind of the specific claims. Cause yeah, I mean, the, the, the president 
or, or former President Trump, I guess I should say at this point, um, at the time laid, laid the groundwork for some of that stuff. And 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 I, and I think it's I think it's worth pointing out, you know, that that um, reasonable people can disagree on some of those policies as far as early voting or absentee voting. And, you know, like, I I think that there's, there's different, there's different pros and cons to this. Um, Although I think it was in the last podcast that I talked about how America kind of has this weird obsession with um, making it like uh, making it hard to vote that other democracies will do things like register for you to vote automatically as soon as you turn voting age and and uh, they don't we, we don't really have that and and I think there's there's a lot of reasons for that I, I think some of it potentially goes back to Jim Crow era policies of of um, you know trying to limit different people being able to vote and stuff like that and their vestiges of that but that, I don't think it's the only reason either um, but but anyway so I, so I think that the the, you know, we can disagree on those policies, but I think what really is important, and this is what you led, led off with your question, which is, well, what really happened? Like, so, so we, so, you know, we call into question absentee voting, uh, we call into question some of this other stuff, what really happens? And, and on election night, one of the things that happened was actually here in our, in our own home state in Antrim County, right? where uh, you had a software glitch, essentially. It was a, it was a user error software glitch uh, that was instantaneously kind of fixed. And, um, and, but a lot of people seized on that as see there's kind of shenanigans going on. And what we ultimately see this as is one of the, one of the narratives around this, this, this stolen election claim was uh, these voting machines and the voting software, right? So can you uh, maybe walk us through that a little bit? Good, and so the the voting software that we're getting at here is is called, or that became the the villain for um, people um, that were were advancing the ideas that the election was stolen. Uh, The voting software was something called Smartmatic. And uh, Smartmatic was an election software company and uh, has has been involved in U.S. elections in the past. And they actually got their start after the Bush versus Gore election, which is which was kind of the last time that we had a really super close election like this. Right. And, and it was a it was a, a company that was launched by a Venezuelan immigrant, uh, Antonio Mujica. And uh, and this is where you see these kernels of truth that become disinformation, right? Indeed, this this individual came from Venezuela, uh, but he was not he was not a relative to Hugo Chavez. He was not um, influencing the election because of his Venezuela ties, uh, and we know this is true because uh, Smartmatic uh, in the twenty twenty election, their software was used in one place uh, in the entire election process. It was not used at all in a swing state. Uh, the the county, L.A. County, city of L.A., I, I don't remember specifically which one it was, but in, in Los Angeles, southern Los Angeles uh, or southern California, uh, Smartmatic was used. Uh, it was not used in any of the contested states that played out over the course of the next week. But yet you had people in the Trump campaign, notably Sidney Powell, who was a Trump lawyer and... Rudy Giuliani, who was a former mayor of New York, but also one of Trump's personal lawyers, kind of going on TV 
and making these claims about Smartmatic. And then the also also the, the other one was Dominion voting machines who were Smartmatic is the software Dominion uh, that was used very limitedly. And then, then you also had some Dominion voting uh, machines that that were done. And so these people kind of got on got on TV, went on places like maybe a Fox News or, or maybe they went on to CNN or something like that. And they made a lot of these claims, correct? Right. They came on and, and, and said all of these things, uh, claiming that these companies were part of a, a systematic attempt to rig and steal the election. But and, that's not true. Right. And, and, the, and the owner of Smartmatic uh, was so passionate about it that he has since launched a, a $2.7 billion lawsuit against Fox News uh, for, air, for their anchors discussing this and airing clips claiming Smartmatic had done these things. And $2.7 billion lawsuits aren't lawsuits that happen often. Like that's a, that is a crazy amount of money. Right. And, and that was, and we'll talk about that. The courts play a role in redressing um, situations that involve disinformation, uh, but sometimes the damage has already been done. Right. And ultimately the 2.7 billion was arrived at because other nations were dumping the Smartmatic software, not because they necessarily believed that Smartmatic had done these things, but there was enough information out in these, these right-wing ecosystems that took away their credibility uh, and would simply employing Smartmatic within their own elections could lead to distrust within their own institutions. Right. And so this is one of those things where when we look at this, so that, so Smartmatic was one of those. And, and there was, there was a really funny uh, exchange on One America News where um, there, the other guy that's been really famous, uh, kind of a, a, a supporter of the former president who, uh, he was the MyPillow CEO. His name is Mark Lindell. And he's been really uh, made a lot of headlines for um, going on various news sources. And at one point in time, he went on One American News and started talking about stolen elections. And the interviewer walked off. It's a pretty funny YouTube clip because normally interviewers don't walk off their own shows. It's the it's the people who are being interviewed a lot of times that will get mad and will walk off. But that's not what happened with Lindell. And so I believe he's now, I think maybe in the three weeks that since we've recorded the first section of this uh, episode, I want to say that he might be in some legal trouble himself now um, for some of the stuff that he is not not criminal legal, but civil uh, suit. I believe um, there's been some whispers of that as well. Um, so, so you have the Smartmatic stuff, and, and and so we can kind of know that that's like it's been it's been proven that that's not a that's not an issue. And so I guess, I guess maybe it's, it's worth, it's worth pointing out to, to our listeners here that we're not necessarily saying again, that, that you need to um, agree with all of the new voting practices and procedures that were out there. Like that's a, that's, that's something that you can go, well, I don't think people should be able to do that. Right. Um, but that's a different conversation of then did this lead to a stolen election because the election wasn't stolen. You're, you know, there's million, you know, President Biden did, in fact, win by something like seven million votes, and and he won the electoral college. So, um, and there were counts and recounts and things of that nature. So, and and I would I'm going to jump in. I would go a step farther and say you can even agree to say that there was legitimate concerns about the security of the election. You can a reasonable person can say going into the election this was a concern of theirs. 
Uh, however, uh, multiple state attorney generals and, and multiple individuals have now all come out corroborated the same the same information to say this was the most secure election. Both Republican and Democrat. Correct. This is not a partisan, was it a secure election, unless you are still subscribing to, to these theories of disinformation and that have been proven to be false. Right. Yet, yet, yet the reverberations of people believing these things are still felt in our society. Right. So because, I mean, and then, and then now we're kind of fast forwarding to, to January, obviously because a lot of people thought that election was stolen and listened to um, the president himself on numerous occasions make those claims that by and large didn't have any evidence. And, and when you say, well, how do you know it didn't have any evidence? And, and, and maybe the word any is not 100% accurate, but not enough evidence to hold up in court, right? I mean, he had, I think it was something like 55 or 56 legal challenges that, had, that with the exception of one of them were all thrown out of courts by um, many of the people that threw them out were, were judges that Trump appointed himself, correct? Right. Uh, thus tearing down the idea of this partisan nature of the debate. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's helpful to think of the courts as, as part of the solution, it, it, right? That, that courts can offer redress. Courts can come in and say, you can't do these things. You can't say these things without some type of civil um, uh, civil punishment. Uh, and, and why I would like to think that this is, I would like to believe that this is going to be enough to take care of the problem. Uh, we live in an era where information travels very, very quickly. Uh, and as long as that information travels very quickly and people, and it's uh, supporting or reinforcing what they want to believe anyways, uh, what happens in the courts and the truth that comes limping after these stories uh, really uh, doesn't matter. I love it. You just used like one of my favorite quotes from a piece that we read in AP Lang by Jonathan Swift. So next year, if you're an integrated kid, if you're if you're an AP kid, listen to this. We've already read it. But that quote by Jonathan Swift, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after. Like that is essentially what happened in this case, right? Is that you had a bunch of people that essentially, because they are big supporters of the president, and there's nothing wrong with being a big supporter of, of former President Trump. That's that that is everyone's right, and and I love that we live in a society where everyone can can agree to you know can agree or disagree on those things, and they have their own choices, right? But because those people, you know, essentially were his supporters and 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 believe those claims that that caused them to. Some, a very small number, but uh, when you consider the grand scheme of, of, you know, the millions of people who are supporters, but, but a number of people stormed the Capitol and, and you know, partook of this uh, illegal action um, of, of storming the actual Capitol building itself, which is a tough thing because you're storming the Capitol building because you believe that, again, you don't have any trust in the democratic processes. So you do something that's inherently undemocratic, which is we're going to stop this democratic process in order to get some type of change in, in a, in an election. Right. And, and that's a, in many ways, that's an easy example to then come back to and say, here's, here's why it matters. Uh, and I would add another, even maybe slightly more subtle example to say, look at the Georgia runoff. And, and most studies have said that voter suppression occurred, that fewer voters came out for the, for the Georgia runoff 
now they don't. So you can't exactly explain why someone doesn't show up scientifically with 100% accuracy. But one of the theories is people didn't trust that their vote was going to count. Uh, they were busy doing any other things anyway. So why would I take time to participate in a system that's already rigged? For those of you who may not know, the Georgia runoff is uh, an election that happened in the state of Georgia for Senate. They do their election a little bit differently than we do in the state of Michigan here in that if no candidate gets 50% of the vote, they have to do another election that's held roughly a month or two months later. And so, um, and, and that's what happened in Georgia this time around was a runoff uh, in er, early January, just a day or two before the events of January 6th. And so that's that's what Hav is, is referencing there. All right. Other reasons that you look at this topic, you think it's important. What what is this doing to us kind of as we're, we're wrapping up? Well, it's it's just it's, to me. And I think things have settled down. I'm, I, in some ways, I'm almost glad that it's been three weeks since we've since we've taken this because you've seen that like some of the stuff you start to see the legal processes of what's happened to the people who stormed the Capitol, like they've they've been arrested and they're they're starting to face they're starting to go to trial and you know things of that nature. The the early processes of that, and and I think you're starting to see a nation that that is on some level starting to pick up the pieces and move on and stuff like that. And so I think that's that's good and encouraging. But I mean, the other thing that it's kind of done is it's is when it's really important that that we believe in the sanctity, not the sanctity, the security, that's a better word, of our elections. Because if, if look, if our elections truly aren't secure, then obviously we need to fix that, right? But when you have, like you said previously, a bunch of um, uh, secretaries of state and different election experts that say, no, this was a very secure election, then we need to be able to have confidence in that. Because if we don't, if we believe that the next time this happens, if we believe that the other guy is illegitimately elected, then anytime you work with him, then that's illegitimate yourself. You, you can't work with someone who you feel is like a threat to the system illegitimately elected. And what we all kind of want what I hear from our students and people that I talk to time and time again, is like, why won't these people just work together? Well, you can't even begin to work together if you believe that one side is either evil or illegitimate or going to be the end of society and stuff like that. Like, that's just not a thing. Those two things can't coexist. So you're saying there's already enough systemic uh, processes in place that inhibit bipartisanship. There's all kinds of things that you could already look at and say, this this is going to make it hard for us to get along. We certainly don't need to add in uh, facts, alternative facts, things that simply aren't true, uh, further clogging up the system of an attempted bipartisanship. Right. 100%. Like, yes, it is. We already live in an extremely divided, hyper-partisan reality and we don't need to make it worse by believing in, in untruths. And, that, and that's hard because there's a lot of people that sometimes that we trust or, or whatever, they, they, they get duped or, or, or you know, that um, get sucked into things and it becomes even more difficult, right? That's where kind of QAnon comes into this a little bit, right? Uh, which we'll talk about at some point as well. But yeah, I mean, those two things, trust in institutions, it's it's so really important because if you don't have trust in institutions, then it encourages you to kind of break the rules. 
right? That And the rules are important when it comes to democracy. If we don't live by the rules, then we're not really living by democracy. Um, and then I would say the last thing that it does is it just kind of makes us crappier people uh, because we're when you believe misinformation, you're also believing hyperpartisan misinformation. You are more likely to think that people who disagree with you are evil and bad and wrong. And then our rhetoric gets terrible. You just need to look no further than how people treat each other online, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure I want to touch that one as far as how we treat each other online. But I, I would say that especially the, the casualty here is when we're disagreeing on facts, it quickly spills over into um, extremism on policies. And I think you've you've already said it in the second segment that it, it's OK if you have a, a, if you have a different viewpoint of a policy it's like this is what our nation's built on. This is this is what you and I love about about teaching and about interacting with kids is that that we can give voice to all of these different policies and talk about what is good about them, what is bad about them. There's there's no magic bullet of policies for anything. Uh, but when those when people start defending those policies with falsehoods, this is where you create more extreme views and you really eliminate that ability to work with the other side. Or you ignore policies just to blindly support either the side or the person or the candidate or whoever that you like. Yep. All right. I think, I think this wraps up generally what we wanted to get out about this idea of disinformation. Uh, sorry that it took us so long, but turns out a, a real job and civic duty uh, is is taking precedence over this hobby of, of podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yes. That that trial really got in the way of our podcast. The judge did not understand uh, what I gave that to her as an excuse. She she did not. She didn't seem to really get it. I, I don't understand why. Um, but maybe we'll get one more listener this week. Maybe she'll tune in. Who knows? So uh, anyway, uh, the Everding Podcast is a production of the Everding Lunch Hour. Music for the episode was recorded by our own Bree Hoffman. Also, thanks to Josh Linkus for creating our show graphic. We'll see you guys next week uh, with a topic yet to be determined. See ya. Take care, guys.